I uh, have a serious subject to speak on today. I suppose that every Sabbath it's going to be a serious subject. But it's one that I think that we need to take very, very seriously. Uh, We need to consider something that is going to affect, is affecting all of us at all times. Uh, Do we understand what is happening around us? We, We know the world is changing. It's changing rapidly and dramatically. Now, sadly, for those who are younger, not any fault of their own, they don't have enough long-time experience to know just how much the world has changed. Because in thinking these things, I had to change something in my notes. I thought 20 years ago, but it's more like 30 years ago, uh, some dramatic things took place. Things began to change in our world. And when you think of 30 years, unless you're 45 or 50 years of age, you probably don't even recognize how much of a change it has been. Although many things are happening, even as, uh, even as I speak, there are so many things happening in our world. But do we understand what's happening around us? And are we monitoring what we think and how we feel? In other words, are we monitoring what those changes and what those things happening around us are doing to us personally and how we think about things and especially how we feel about things, how it affects our emotions, whether they be emotions of anger and hostility or just getting excited about something that maybe we ought not be excited about. Do you understand how the prince of the power of the air is working in our world? And honestly, brethren, I think that many do not. I think many do not really comprehend how the prince of the power of the air is working to destroy this world and, if he can, to destroy our lives. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say that I don't think 50% of you understand or get it. And sometimes he said, I don't think that even 10% of you get it. He was right, wasn't he? He was right. He could say the same message week after week or very similar messages, and people just didn't get it. I struggled with a, a title for this sermon. I normally throw together a, a title fairly quickly. Uh, the specific purpose statement is what I go by in terms of what the sermon's going to be about. And sometimes I'll come up with what I think is a clever title, but it doesn't really tell what the sermon is about. It uh, is there to attract some attention for the sermon or more likely an article or something. But this is going to be somewhat similar to an article and some of the talk that Dr. Meredith had toward the end of his life about Satan's alternative universe. Now, I didn't want to name it that uh, simply because that was his title, and that was the way that he was going to describe a particular situation that we have in our world. I thought of the title, The Devil's Infomercial, or Satan's Infomercial. But the devil and Satan are words that have been trivialized by the very one that it is describing. 
the devil made me do it, is a common expression that uh, people use. And so we trivialize him as though he's really not there. He's a figment of our imagination or something to blame something on, but not real. And no doubt he is the master of that. He is the one that has designed it that way. So I finally settled on a title. It's not uh, maybe any more effective, but I'm titling this sermon, The Serpent's Infomercial. In spite of the shortcomings of that title, The Serpent's Infomercial. That's the subject of today's sermon. And I want to challenge you to think about how the prince of the power of the air is working not only in the world, but in your life as well, how he is trying to work in your life. And I hope this sermon causes you to evaluate more carefully the things that you allow into your mind, through your eyes and your ears, and everything that is around us. Old-timers are familiar with the doctrine of the spirit in man. From what I can tell, it's not a major doctrine in most churches. It's not even a doctrine in most churches. But if you go out on the Internet, you can find that there are some that, that talk about the spirit in man, but very little. Outside of the church of God, I cannot find that it's a major doctrine in any church. Yet many newcomers may be totally unfamiliar with it. You've heard us talk about it, but you may not really know some of the background of it. It was not always a doctrine in the church of God. I first learned of it at a master college in 1965 and the years that I was there through 69. Mr. Herbert Armstrong was coming to understand something that he did not understand before. And as was the case with Mr. Armstrong, he would talk about it, and he would talk about it, and he would talk about it. And every sermon somehow would be somewhat about the spirit man. It seemed like it was a little bit more later on, but nevertheless, he was formulating, he was beginning to understand the scriptures that talk about it. It's not that the doctrine wasn't always there. It's always been there in the Bible. But the truth hadn't sunk in. Again, it's not something that you're going to find in most of the major churches. In Job, the 32nd chapter, in verse 8, we read of the spirit in man. Job 32 and verse 8. This is one of the more prominent passages that speaks of it very directly. It says, but there is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. So there's a spirit and man, and it says the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Somehow this spirit and man allows man to think and to reason, and it gives us a certain understanding. The book of Ecclesiastes has a passage that I think has puzzled many of us, certainly has puzzled me for a long time. I... I wish I could go back and and ask Mr. Armstrong uh, what he thought about this particular passage. It's found in Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, and in verse 21. 
You know, you always have questions that you want to ask somebody until you are there with them. If you haven't written them down, and then you can't think of anything. There are always questions I had that I would have loved to ask Mr. Armstrong, but the times I was in his presence, whether it be in his home for a dinner, which he had for the seniors, uh, small groups of, of seniors at a time, or on other occasions, my mind always came up blank. But I'd like to know what he thought about it. It says in verse 21, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 21, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men? The spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. Now, for traditional Christians, I suppose they look at that as uh, the spirit being the soul. And that's part of the problem. The idea of the immortal soul had confused the whole issue. And Mr. Armstrong spent a lot of time, as did the church, explaining away scriptures, or I say explaining away, explaining what the, the true meaning of scriptures were that had been distorted and twisted by those who believed in a pagan, heathen doctrine of the immortal soul. But here it says that who knows? So it's a question, which it doesn't really give us an answer to. The spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So that makes the question, okay, do animals have a spirit, an animal spirit? Well, we know that dogs have certain approaches, and we know that cats have a very different personality. And we look at all the different animals and creatures and it's a question I don't have an answer for. I can speculate, as you can, but as I often say, uh, your speculation is just as bad as mine, or vice versa. We don't know. But it does speak of the spirit of the sons of men there. So this idea of a spirit in man is definitely in the Scriptures. It is not the immortal soul, because that is a doctrine that, frankly, kept us from understanding the spirit man because we recognize that man doesn't have this immortal, ever-living spirit entity in us in the sense that it is the real you, and after you die, it goes to heaven or goes to hell. Now, if you have any questions about that, and I'm not going to go into that subject today other than just mentioning it, but... Coming Thursday on Thanksgiving Day, we have the telecast. Do you have an immortal soul? Do you have an immortal soul? That's coming up this Thursday through uh, the following Wednesday. So next Sunday, you can watch the telecast, and your bulletin has a number of stations that you can check out. Uh, we can get it five, six times here in this area, and you can always get it on Roku or um, on the website, uh, you can watch the telecast anytime, 24-7. Now, if you'd like to go back a few years and see what Mr. Ames looked like in 2004 and how vigorous he was advertising the, um, uh, what was it, the, uh, the cassette tapes. You know, he's holding up a cassette tape there. In 2004... Uh, he had a program on the truth about the immortal soul. And if you prefer to read or don't have the Internet, 
or television, you can always go to the booklet that I wrote on John 3.16, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse. And chapter 7 has a section that talks about the, the problem of the immortal soul, why it is a pagan doctrine and why it is not found in the Bible. So what does the Bible tell us about this spirit in or spirit of man? What are we to learn from the Bible? In Zechariah, the 12th chapter, Zechariah 12 and verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Eternal, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So here's another scripture. This is the third one that we've read that talk about the spirit of man. There is a spirit in man. And Proverbs 20. And again, we're not talking about a soul as Christianity teaches. This is something different. And this was hard for Mr. Armstrong to understand. And then when he explained it to us, it became clear as to what it is, at least in a general sense, we can understand it. But it is not a, a soul that uh, is the real you, that is a conscious self. It is unconscious, but it empowers the brain. It is a spirit essence. It's like maybe we could say uh, today with our computers, which, well, Mr. Armstrong used to use the example of a, a cassette tape and put it in a tape recorder. And the tape empowers or brings something out, uh, but it is... You know, it doesn't have the, the, the movements and everything that a recorder does. A recorder is more, quote, alive, you might say. And the tape is, is just there to uh, bring something out. I think a better analogy, which he didn't have the opportunity to give, is when we have a computer. A computer, we have hardware, and you can have a general program to do some uh, word processing. But if you're computer is powerful enough, you can put into a, a, a program that will empower it to go to a higher level to do a very complicated program that it might not otherwise do. That's perhaps imperfect, but nevertheless, we try to, we struggle with ideas. How do we explain these things? I've explained this part of the picture before in Isaiah, the um, 55th chapter. Oh, let me go back to Proverbs. I didn't read Proverbs, I don't think. Proverbs 20, verse 27. Uh, it says here, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, or the eternal. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the eternal, searching all the inner depths of his heart. So it is this, through the spirit of man that God can look into the inner parts of a human being, the, the, the inner thinking, the very depths of our thinking, of our emotions, and so forth. Now let's go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, and as I started to say, this is something I have covered here uh, in the past, but it's part of the big picture. In Isaiah 55 and verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if we were to leave it there, 
we would simply say, well, God is up here at a certain level of thinking, and we are hopelessly lost. We can't think like he thinks. But when you look at the context of this particular passage, you see that he is talking there to people who are unconverted. He starts out, Ho, everyone who thirsts, verse 1, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And then down in verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is inviting people to come to him, to stop chasing after things that never satisfy. And he says it's given freely, without money, without price. Now, when we see here that he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, we can stop there and leave it at that and just say, well, I can't think like God. But in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, a passage that we have touched on a number of times, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, it makes a statement very similar in verse 9. It says, But as it is written, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't comprehend the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But the scripture does not stop there. The scripture continues, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Yes, the deep things, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. And then the Apostle Paul makes a statement about the spirit in man. It's interesting because I was looking this morning at a commentary that is good in a lot of things, but this particular case, I, I thought, well, I, I want to know what, what they say about this verse. And all they had was one sentence and basically just says, this is an analogy Paul used and just kind of sloughed it off and went on talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is... Uh, what, what Paul is talking about in, in general here, but we should not take this as a trivial thing, what he says in verse 11. He says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? And Mr. Armstrong rightfully understood that there is something to the human brain that goes beyond the normal physical brain that we have. There are creatures with larger brains than man's brain. Now, it is true that it isn't just the size, but the complexity, the number of connections and all kinds of things. So it's a very complex subject. But he recognized that when you look at the size of a, a man's brain compared to others, yes, we're, we have a larger brain and everything, but our ability to understand is so exponential, way beyond anything of the animal's. What man can know the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? This is a powerful, powerful statement. 
when we think about it. It imparts understanding. It gives man intellect that animals simply do not have. Man with the spirit can understand calculus. Well, let me say some men <laughs> can understand calculus. Trigonometry. We can build hospitals. We can travel into space. We have computers that, with, as they call it, AI or artificial intelligence that can do amazing things. We, we can build robots that can run like a, a human being or like a dog. They have four-legged robots and two-legged. and These are not things that are easy to do for man to be able to, to accomplish these things. We build hospitals. We have medicines. We take care of the animals. We don't see them operating on us. Well, when they're operating on us, they're making us dinner, aren't they? They don't operate on us to help us. I think that when we look at it, man's ability is so far above anything of the animals, and it's really laughable how evolutionists are always trying to show a progression here. Here's a monkey, and he can, you know, or a chimpanzee, and he takes a stick and licks it and sticks it down a hole with ants and pulls it out and licks off the ants, and he's using a tool, a tool. Well, you know, we can, we can make tools that make tools. We have copy machines now, 3D copy machines that can make tools that actually work. They may not hold up very long, but they, they actually can work. All kinds of things that we can do that animals simply cannot do. Now, animals can do some pretty marvelous things. When you look at a bird's nest, it's pretty remarkable, pretty amazing. But the bird always makes the same, same kind of nest. I say the same kind of nest. Well, sometimes the male, I think it's the weaver bird, makes the nest, and uh, the female then you know, checks it out. Well, no, I don't like that one. I'm going to go over here. So there must be some difference. But to our eyes, we probably don't recognize the difference in them. You wonder about the spirit of animals. What is it? What is it that makes an animal the way it, it is? I, I don't have an answer for that, but I just wonder. It's a question I'd like to ask uh, during the res- after the resurrection. Ask somebody about it. But Man with this spirit can understand things that animals cannot. And when this spirit is united with God's spirit, a new man is begotten. A new creature has begun. Let's notice over in Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans 8 and verse 14. It says here, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Now, this is a different spirit. There's a spirit in man, and there's a spirit of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Uh, Hold your place here. Let me go back to Corinthians again, because I don't think I finished the the thought there in uh, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter again. Verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So it makes that comparison there. We cannot know the things of God without the Spirit of God. 
And so he's saying that, you know, eye has not seen nor ear heard, but with the Spirit of God, we can begin to understand the things of God. Through a glass darkly, of course, but we can begin to understand those things. Now back here in Romans, the 8th chapter, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Then verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. This is God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now that's a a really an amazing statement there, that God's Spirit bearing witness with our spirit makes us the children of God. There's a, a coming together of two different spirits. Over in 1 John, the third chapter, it really completes the picture. 1 John 3 and verse 9. Whoever has been born or should be begotten of God does not sin. For his, that is God's, seed remains in him. Now, the word there, as we've pointed out many times, is sperma. It means sperm. God's sperm. In other words, God's DNA has been transferred into us, to put it in a human term that's imperfect, but nevertheless. We have God's sperm, God's DNA, implanted in us with the Holy Spirit. God's spirit and man's spirit. They come together, as it says there in Romans, the uh, 8th chapter, verse 16, as we just read. It makes us a new creature. We are the children of God. God has reproduction in the human sense and the animal sense to teach us something. Now, the the process may be uh, certainly uh, very different, but nevertheless, it is two spirits coming together. Now, the spirit in man... Receives, receives spiritual signals from God. But, and here's the problem, it can also receive signals, spiritual signals, from another source. And this is where we run into problems. This is where we have the difficulty. In Ephesians, the second chapter, it makes it very clear that there is a spirit out here I'm calling him today the serpent, going back to the Garden of Eden. But in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he says, You he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world. He says, you once walked according to the course of this world. And he's talking there, frankly, when you read the whole context, he's talking about the Gentiles, but specifically all of us. He says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in verse 3. We all once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. So it is the prince of the power of the air that is directing the course of this world. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's able to work in human beings for disobedience. So God's spirit in us makes us a new creature, but it doesn't take away the ability for Satan to also transmit 
thoughts, and emotions through the spirit in man. This spirit in man receives spiritual signals. But the prince of the power of the air directs the course of this world, and he does so through his spirit. Right now, in this room, there are voices, there are words, there are pictures surrounding us. They're all over in this room. We don't hear them unless we have a receiver. Somebody bring a radio in. Actually, you can just use your smartphone. Turn on. You can pull up all kinds of pictures, all kinds of words, all kinds of music, all kinds of voices. It's all there. It's all around us. But we don't have the receiver for it. But the spirit in man allows us to be able to understand way beyond the animals. And Satan is able to broadcast to a human being and, and work in the sons of disobedience and work, sadly, even amongst God's people to give his infomercial, his message that he wants to get across to each and every one of us. This receiver, the spirit in man, is given to empower your brain and to unite with the spirit of God so that you can understand spiritual things and be born into the very God family. It's a wonderful thing that God is doing in us. But we must learn to discern between two spirits. In 1 John 4, 1 John 4 and verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. There's a lot that's going on out here. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in the context of the Bible and religion in general, uh, we have to test the spirits. But we also have to test whether... The course of this world is going God's way or the serpent's way. So how does a serpent work his magic? The serpent's infomercial works this way. He uses the five senses to manipulate our thoughts and emotions. He'll use music. He'll use pictures. He'll use social media. He'll use all the things that come into our eyes and our ears and our thoughts to sell his agenda. Consider this. While animals have emotions, can they understand sadness or joy from a movie? I know that animals can be sad. When another animal that they've lived with dies, they can mourn. When the owner of an animal dies, an animal, a dog especially, will mourn. He'll stay with him. There's something there. They have emotions. We had a, a dog and there was a cat that would always walk just on the other side of the chain link fence and walk back and forth very boldly. Our dog hated cats. You could just, you could see that he, he did not like cats. And one time he got a hold of one and, uh, all I can say is I was thankful that I was there to grab his tail. Because when he shook it and threw it, uh, I wouldn't let him get back to it. That's not an easy thing with a German shepherd who wants to kill a cat. 
and uh, would have done so. He was not a full-grown cat. But a dog looking at a, at a television screen, you know, there are some animals, cats or dogs, look, look up at a television screen, but are they getting the message the way that you and I are? Are they feeling the sadness and all the things that may be going on in the movie? Or are they just fascinated by the movie? I mean, the movement of it. Man is different because of the spirit in man. We can comprehend emotions in a way that animals don't. I, again, I'm not saying animals don't have emotions because I, I've seen it. They do. But not in the same way that, that man does in that they can be manipulated by a lot of outside forces. Look at how the serpent is seducing and changing our world. I'd like to read from uh, Dr. Meredith's um, article, Satan's Alternate Universe, Alternative Universe. This is from the July-August 2016 Tomorrow's World magazine. And he thought a lot about this toward the end of his life. I remember him talking about he wanted to make a booklet on the subject. He says, very few people understand the significance of the massive changes underway in our society, our entire society. Not since the time of Sodom and Gomorrah have people generally been as confused in so many ways. This is especially so right now because of the massive misuse of technology. By gaining almost total control of the media... A very real Satan the devil is able to manipulate the thinking, the attitudes, and the actions of billions of human beings, especially the younger generation. The younger generation just doesn't understand how much the world is changing. And in schools, you know, Satan is really after our children. He's going right down to the lowest levels there in terms of age. You know, when you have, as the article that I just wrote for Tomorrow's World or that came out about drag queen story time or drag queen story hour, this is geared for little children. It's geared to indoctrinate them. And I'm going to show you from their own words that this is what's intended. Not necessarily that particular thing, but in general, this whole trend that we see there. We are now physically older and have had to suffer to learn many lessons. Those of us who are older, many lessons in life should have, uh, we should have learned not to jump on the bandwagon and go along with the latest sociological and psychological twists and turns orchestrated by Satan the devil. For we have found, perhaps over decades, that many of these ideas simply do not work. When some confused young radio or TV announcer reads the prepared script saying that people's civil rights are being violated if perverted young men cannot declare themselves as women and get to use women's restrooms and showers alongside our young daughters and wives, we become upset, those of us who are older, because we know and deeply understand that these ideas are totally wrong. They simply don't work, and they will not bring about the good results or good results at all. Now, that's interesting because this was written three years ago, and even now on conservative news sources, they just want to put this all aside. Okay, well, that's, that's a battle. It's gone, and, you know, we don't want to talk about that. 
uh, we're, we're, you know, all for these things. It's just amazing. It isn't just young people. In fact, young people might be more upset about it because it's going to be at their school that uh, these things can happen. But nevertheless, our whole society is accepting these things. I say our whole society. Not all of our society. Many people are not, but too many are. But as more billions of young people are brought under the influence of Satan the devil in so many of these modern situations, it is obvious that Satan is gaining control of our society more thoroughly than ever because of the pervasive nature of our media. For Satan can literally bombard people with these wrong ideas through television, through radio, through newspapers, through the Internet, and so many other forms of media that many are tuned into many times every day. Almighty God knew that this world, this would occur. So he directly explained to the early Christians how they once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The Bible makes it clear that Satan the devil is a powerful cherub who rebelled against the Creator and is now allowed by God to be the God of this age who has blinded those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Let's take a sampling of Satan of uh, the serpent's infomercial. I wrote down nearly 20 years ago, and I had to do my math again. It's hard to keep up with our math sometimes. But nearly 30 years ago, homosexuals started coming out of every sitcom closet. Before that, you, you never saw such a thing. Yeah, there was Liberace, which was a little bit light in the loafers. You knew that. Uh, there were other individuals, but you didn't have them openly coming out of the closet declaring what they were. We were introduced to Three's Company. That was a sitcom. I actually had looked that up because I couldn't remember. I, didn't, I wasn't a viewer of it, but I knew what it was about. Uh, I, had, I, I couldn't remember if it was two men and one girl or the other way around. Well, it's, it's one guy and two girls living with him, all in the same apartment. Why is that done? Why would they do something like that? Well, it's all to normalize deviant behavior, as I'll show you. Husbands and wives became referred to as partners because that allowed someone who was not your wife or your husband. And so when Robert Dole, how many years ago was that? After he ran for president and didn't win, he started advertising... What was it Viagra, I think it was? Your partner will love you for it or whatever. Your partner. Your partner. You know, the, the left is so good. I say the left. The serpent who inspires them is so good at using language to change our thinking. I remember watching a beer commercial one time on television where two women kissed. Pretty disgusting. That was the last time I ever drank that beer. I didn't drink it before, but uh, that, was, that was for sure. I never knew who Katy Perry was until I saw her on Canada's CTV morning show singing, I kissed a woman and I liked it. 
And she had an audience there, which they didn't always have on that show, that morning show, but they had an audience this time of tween girls, girls that were probably preteen, or if they were teens, they were barely teens. And they were dancing along and singing along with her. They knew the words. They knew the words. And why did they bring all these kids in there with her when they had other artists and they didn't bring an audience in? Even HGTV is in on the act with untraditional couples and various products to sell. As I tell my wife, HGTV is an infomercial. Everything on it is trying to sell something. I, she, she likes that, and I think a lot of people like that, and there are a lot of, I suppose, good reasons to watch it, but you have to understand what it is. You really have to understand it. And you have to understand what it's doing to you. Is it making you want to do an addition to your, your house? Do you suddenly want to do something because you saw something there? You know, being bombarded with it day after day? I saw, I walked by the television and I saw this box in the background that said Wayfair. I don't know what Wayfair was, never heard of it before, but I said, they're advertising. Sure enough, you find out Wayfair is what a, I don't know, online company, I don't know what it is, but they, they sell things. Everything is an infomercial. When you see a Ford car in a police chase, they're advertising. They're advertising all the time. David Capellian, and I know that many of you are familiar with this. How many of you happen to have read this? The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian? Uh, looks like about uh, 8%. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, if you like to read and read something besides our literature, which I hope you read our literature first, but if you like to read, this is an eye-opener. This is an eye-opener with a lot of good information in it. Let me just read a little bit here on page 66. He says, everything, he's quoting from uh, uh, this McClesk, uh, Robert McChesney, who is University of Illinois communications professor. He says, everything on MTV, that's something, I don't even know if MTV is still out there, but I, I, you know, it was, it was all the young people watched it, is a commercial. That's all that MTV is. Sometimes it's an explicit advertisement paid for by a company to sell a product. Sometimes it's going to be a video for a music company there to sell music. Sometimes it's going to be the set that's filled with trendy clothes and stuff there to sell a look. No, to sell a look that will include products on that set. Sometimes it will be a show about an upcoming movie paid for by the studio, though you don't know it, to hype a movie that's coming out from Hollywood. Even the news programs. You watch the news programs. If somebody's written a book, they're interviewed. They're interviewed on this station, this station, this station, or this network, all across. It's all an infomercial. He says, but everything's an infomercial. There is no non-commercial part of MTV. And then it gives an example of how Sprite was not doing very well, you know, the drink, the sparkly drink there. 
It was one struggling second-string soft drink company pulled off a brilliant. They, they pulled off a brilliant marketing coup by underwriting major hip-hop music events and positioning itself as the cool soft drink for the vast MTV generation market. And what they did is they paid $50 per kid to come in, and all these hip-hop stars, and they, uh, they, they started advertising that way, and they presented it as the cool thing, as that which uh, young people would like. So what, you say? What's wrong with that? Aren't MTV and rappers and clothing companies and others just giving kids what they want? That's what they say, but it's not what they do. In reality, the companies are creating new and lower and more shocking, and that's the key word, shocking, marketing campaigns, disguised as genuine, authentic expressions of youthful searching for identity and belonging for the sole purpose of profiting financially from America's children. They hire shills to interact with young people in Internet chat rooms. These people are hired to interact with young people and others as well, Internet chat rooms. They engage secret snitches to loudly talk of a band or other products to raise interest. They bring the entire machinery of modern market research and consumer psychology to bear on studying this gold mine of a market to anticipate the next and always weirder and more shocking incarnation of cool. I know that this has been talked about before, but we need to understand it, that this is, there, there are people out there who are trying to merchandise off you, and who are they? They are people that this, you know, the serpent is moving to do things for his purposes, to get rich, to lower standards. There's, these are not accidental. They're not accidental on the human level, and they certainly are not accidental on the spiritual level. All of this is a clear attempt to normalize, desensitize, and convert a naive populace. I'd like to read here from a book that is a little bit hard to get these days. Uh, it's called After the Ball. How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. Now, this was, the research on this was done in the late 80s. And this book came out about 19, I think it was uh, 89. And remember earlier I said that we saw homosexuals coming out of every sitcom, coming out of the closet of every sitcom? Uh, this was no accident. This was no accident. Uh, this was something that had been thought out, a well-planned campaign. This is written by two very uh, highly educated individuals, Madsen and Kirk. They said, when you're very different and people hate you for it, this is what you do. Now, the, what, what this book is all about is selling homosexuality to the American population, which they were. These two individuals wrote this. He says, what do you do? Well, first you get your foot in the door by being as similar as possible. Then, and only then, when your one little difference is finally accepted, 
can you start dragging in your other peculiarities one by one? You hammer in the wedge narrow end first. You get that wedge in, and then it opens up more as you hammer it in. As the saying goes, allow the camel's nose beneath your tent, and his whole body will soon follow. Now they talk about a propaganda campaign in their book, a game of propaganda, and I'll explain a little bit of that. But they have three stages of things to do here. Uh, there, there are a lot of different tactics they have, but the three that are mentioned here in this, this uh, particular chapter. The first one is desensitization. Desensitization. As a general physio-psychological rule, novelties cease to be novel if they just stick around long enough. They also cease to activate alerting mechanisms. In other words, if you see something often enough, you just get used to it, like foul language in movies. You just take it for granted after. You just know it's going to be there. You pick up a book, and it's going to have a lot of foul language in it. And so we, we kind of get used to it. There was a time when our alerting mechanism would kick in. There was something wrong here. But if it stays around long enough, it ceases to activate alerting mechanisms. You just, you know, you're overpowered by it. If, however, skipping down a little bit, gays can live alongside straights, notice the word gays, and they, they even explain in the book, this is, this is designed, this is a word that they chose to sell homosexuality to the population. And so they use certain words over and over through this book. Gay is one of them. They use homosexuality. They use a lot of words, but they, they certainly insert this word. If they can live alongside straights visibly, but as inoffensively as possible, they will arouse a low-grade alert only, a low-grade alert only, which, though annoying to straights, will eventually diminish for purely physiological reasons. We'll just get used to it. We can extract the following principles for our campaign. To desensitize straights to gays and gayness, inundate them in a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. Well, you have your favorite sitcom, and now somebody comes out of the closet. Do you turn off, or you just get used to it? If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. You know, 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, tells us something here. 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy 4 and verse 2. It speaks of breaking into a thought here, uh, doctrines of demons. He's talking about speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. One's conscience seared to where you don't feel the heat anymore. It's been 
uh, scabbed over or uh, seared over. Also Hebrews, the third chapter, Hebrews 3 and verse 13. Hebrews 3 verse 13. It says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The longer sin goes on, the more we become hardened to it or inured by it. We, we, we no longer see it as being bad or as bad as it once was. Let's read on in, uh, from after the ball. After desensitizing, they call this next step jamming, jamming. All normal people feel shame when they perceive that they are not thinking, thinking, feeling, or acting like one of the pack. We all want to follow the crowd. And so they said they feel shame or they feel, you know, uh, wanting to uh, hide their feelings if it doesn't go along with the pack. They, they understand these things. He says, thus propagandistic advertisement can depict homophobic and homo-hating bigots. So homophobic is a word that they would prefer to have had changed to homo-hating. That's the word that they really wanted, but it hasn't really caught, caught up uh, like uh, homophobic. But those are words designed by those people very carefully. And the word bigots, that's you, that's me. And they use that over and over again as a pejorative term. Uh, It says, thus propagandistic advertisement can depict homophobic and homo-hating bigots as crude loudmouths, and I can't read the rest of it there, and other shameful epithets who are not Christian. In other words, this is not Christian behavior to portray people uh, doing things that are not Christian. It can show them being criticized, hated, shunned. It can depict gays experiencing horrific suffering as a direct result of the homo-hatred, suffering of which even most bigots would be ashamed to be uh, the cause. And notice he did mention Christian there because they know that that is their greatest enemy. It can, in short, link homo-hating bigotry with all sorts of attributes, the bigot would be ashamed to possess. And with social consequences, he would find unpleasant and scary. Now, the third step is conversion. Conversion. It isn't enough that anti-gay bigots should become confused about us or even indifferent to us. We are safest in the long run if we can actually make them like us. Conversion aims at just this. We mean conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. Point is that these, these things don't happen by accident. There's somebody out there trying to manipulate your mind every day, all day long. Put briefly, if desensitization lets the watch run down and jamming throws sand in the works, conversion reverses the spring so that the hands run backward. 
and conversion the bigot is repeatedly exposed to literal pictures labels pairs in magazines and on billboards and tv of gays explicitly labeled as such who not only don't look like his picture of a homosexual but are carefully selected to look either like the bigot and his friends or like any one of his other stereotypes of all right gays the kind of people he already likes and admires. This image must, of necessity, be carefully tailored to be free of absolutely every element of the widely held stereotypes of how faggots look, dress, and sound. These are his, their words. And he says here, but it makes no difference. It makes no difference that the ads are lies, not to us, because we're using them to ethically good effect. Now, I want to read something in just a minute here, so remember that. They said it makes no difference that the ads are lies, the ones that they are trying to promote, because they're used for ethically good effect. The ad may say something like, rather, uh, something rather like, Beauregard Smith, beer drinker, good old boy, pillar of the community, 100% American, and gay as a mongoose. You may wonder, well, I'll skip that. You know, you think about that. Brokeback Mountain, I never saw it. Actually, I read the a review of it for this. And... I have to say, it, it was far more shocking than I could have ever imagined. I knew it was about two gay cowboys. You see, a cowboy, a, a good old boy, that was written a, a, a story on it, a screenplay, in 1997, just a few years after this came out. And then, of course, the television, not television, but the, the movie came out afterward. The storyline is just absolutely abominable. But it is in the National Archives in, in uh, the Smithsonian as being a cultural breakthrough and various other things, something worthy for us to preserve. Now, the next chapter in this book has a few comments. It says, first, propaganda relies more upon emotional manipulation than upon logic. Note that. It wants to work on emotional manipulation rather than logic, since its goal is, in fact, to bring about a change in the public's feelings. The second sinister characteristic of propaganda is its frequent use of outright lies, a tactic we neither need nor condone. Oh, really? What did we just read in the previous chapter, just a few pages away? Oh, it doesn't matter that it's a lie because it's being used for good effect. In February 1988, however, a war conference of 175 leading gay activists, 1988, representing organizations from across the land convened in Warrington, Virginia, to establish a four-point agenda for the gay movement. The conference gave first priority to a nationwide media campaign to promote a positive image of gays and lesbians. And its final state, in its final statement, it, they concluded, we must consider the media in every project we undertake. 
We must, in addition, take every advantage we can to include public service announcements and paid advertisements and to cultivate reporters and editors of newspapers, radio, and television. To help facilitate this, we need national media workshops to train our leaders. Our media efforts are fundamental to the full acceptance of us in American life. You know, it isn't just this subject of the LGBT movement. It's so many other things that are just like it. There are people who are sitting there with a campaign with what they want to promote. And I know there's a controversial subject with some people, but the whole concept of medical marijuana, whether there is any medical use for it or not, I don't know. Uh, although authorities say that there isn't. They haven't proven it yet. But it was a campaign by people who wanted it for recreational use that pushed that agenda. And people don't get it. They just don't get it. And yet there's, there's plenty of evidence out there. I see. I heard an advertisement the other day for CBD oil. Uh, CBD is not cannabis. It's not marijuana. It's from the cannabis plant. It's non-hallucinogenic. And I'll tell you, it will cure whatever ails you. In fact, they said, "Are you? Do you have health problems? Try CBD oil. It's it's snake oil. In reality, now are there things that it might be helpful for? Very possibly." Maybe yet to all be proven. But when something will heal everything that's wrong with you, then you ought not jump on the bandwagon right away until a little bit more research is done. The serpent has an infomercial out here, and he is changing our society in ways that we can never imagine. What other infomercials is he broadcasting? Hairstyles, immodest dress styles, body piercing and tattoos, vaping, veganism, attitudes of hatred, of racism, and partisanship, and getting all caught up in the politics of this world. He'd like us all to go out there and carry guns. You know, this is just a beginning list when I say carrying guns for reasons that we ought not. This is just a beginning list. But here's an important question for all of us. Are you playing a role in the Serpent's infomercial? Are you part of the cast? Are you playing a leading role, a supporting role, or just an extra on the set? Think about it in these terms. Are you playing a role as an extra in, the what, in what you say on social media by walking around in immodest dress? You're just in the background. You're just part of the big crowd. But you're going along with the infomercial. In fact, you're part of the infomercial. Body piercings, tattoos. I want to say something about tattoos here. Because they're so popular today, and we see them more and more showing up at church. You can't help what you did before you came in the church. I mean, you could have made a different decision, but you made a decision. But before you came in to a relationship with God, 
we all did some really foolish things, didn't we? And even after we've come into the church, we're all guilty of many, many sins. So this is not criticizing what people did before they came into the church. But walking around the feast, when you see people displaying their tattoos, and what do I mean by displaying their tattoos? Well, you know, if you've got your whole arm tattooed, and your woman or a man, you would think that maybe you ought to wear a long sleeve rather than being a part of the infomercial out there. Because everybody's going to see it. They're going to get used to it. They may not like it, but they'll get used to being wet, is the statement was made. Or, you know, on the back of the shoulder and you've got a dress that, that displays it. You know, there's some things you can't hide. You see people with, you know, tattoos on the backs of their, their knuckles. They can't exactly hide those. I guess you could wear gloves all the time. We're not asking people to do that. But it would seem to me that if you read the 19th chapter of Leviticus and the verse which says you shall not tattoo, your, you know, your body or whatever, that someone would say, you know, maybe I really don't want to show this off if I can avoid it. But instead, it seems like there's no shame. There's no desire to close it, to shut it off. Again, you can't do what you can't do. If you've got it on the back of your hand or something or on your cheek or, you know, your ears tattooed or the back of your neck, I mean, you can't exactly hide all those things. And nobody expects you to. We, we love those people that have come in, that have made mistakes, but they come into the church, we still love them. In fact, over in Proverbs 10... In verse 12, there's a, a passage that's quoted really in 1 Peter 4.8. But uh, let's just notice the, where it's quoted from, or at least it's believed to be quoted from there. Proverbs 10, verse 12. It says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. You see, we can accept people who have made mistakes because we care for them, because we love them. It covers all sins. I mean, hatred just stirs up strife. We could argue about it. We don't want to go around, you know, talking to people saying, why would you do this? Why would you do that? But the point is, is a point of education. Wouldn't it make sense that if we did something that we wouldn't do today, that we would uh, not just display it for the whole world to see? It's, it's kind of like people are almost proud of some of their, their, their body art even within the church. Now I realize, too, that we have people that are not members and, and uh, maybe they're just mates of somebody, so I don't know who, who all these people are. But I, I just notice at the feast that, and in other places I see it from time to time. So what are we to do? Well, Paul gave essential advice to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, Ephesians 6, You know, brethren, I bring these things out because it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And we're just going to be torn down by his infomercial where everything around us is going astray. And we're going to be desensitized. We're going to be jammed. We're going to be, sadly, some are converted to the point where they're a part of the infomercial. He says here in verse 11, 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. He is a wily character. He's clever. He's powerful. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so he says, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So truth, we have to know what the scriptures say. We have to live by them. Having your waist girded with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, living by the truth. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your focus being on preaching the good news, the gospel, as opposed to trying to fit in with the world. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all supplication. Brethren, these are words, and I'm, I'm out of time, but these are words that are powerful, and they should not fall on deaf ears. You know, Eve fell prey to the lust of the flesh. It tastes good. It feels good. The lust of the eyes, i got to have it. And the pride of life. Well, I know better than mom and dad. I know better than, you know, the church. I know better than God. When teens hear the music, they see the hats turn around backward and notice that all their idols have tattoos. There's that inner voice that says, without conscious thought, I've got to have that. I need it. And as adults, we're not much different. These are more than words. They have important meaning. Advertising works, so don't be fooled by it. What is the current drumbeat around us? What is the world promoting? What philosophy, what cultural change or idea is the world pushing? Is the world really getting better? I don't think that scripturally you can say that. What social trend do you see today that wasn't there 20 or 30 years ago, if you were old enough to know? If you're not, you can't be blamed for that. Perhaps it's no coincidence in the same letter that Paul instructed us to put on spiritual armor, he also instructed us in the fifth chapter and verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. 